How are we doing this morning? Good? I like the feedback very well. I think we have some kiddos in the house too. How are we doing, kids? Good, I like that. Good stuff. Um, well, my name is Steve Noble. Hey, my name is Steve Noble. I serve on the family ministry team here at Christ Church, working primarily with middle school age students. And I have the privilege this morning of bringing the final message in our impossible series, where we once again will be opening to the book of Isaiah and reading chapter 11 of that book. Um, and this morning, we're going to be talking about the reconciliation and unity that Isaiah foresees in the kingdom of Jesus. Will you receive this word from the Lord? Isaiah says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And here's the section we're really gonna hone in on today. Isaiah goes on. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in a word of prayer? God, we invite you into this space. We invite you to move in our hearts, to move in our community, to, to pour your spirit upon us and to help us understand what it means to live in your kingdom, God. Convict us of areas where we experience brokenness. Convict us of the ways that we live that are not in accordance with how you would have us live, God. Help us to be more fully the people of God. Help us to understand your word. Guide us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to visit my wife's grandparents in Tucson. And if you haven't been to Tucson, and now is a good time of year to try it, it's, uh, it's a beautiful city. Uh, the city itself is nestled in this broad valley surrounded almost entirely by mountains. And these mountains... They're imposing, they're majestic, they frame almost every view, and when you're not in the mountains, when you stand and observe, it looks like one continuous unit, one piece, impermeable, impenetrable. But when you get into them, when you start hiking up or driving up one of the few winding roads or trails leading up and through them, you're able to understand more fully the scale and the depth of what's going on. What looked at first like a vast uniform wall of rock 
is more actually a series of ridges, each drawing you in and up towards this point of finality, the pinnacle. Now, no one reaching that first ridge and looking back down could say anything but, I am in the mountains. But that same person looking forward could do nothing but acknowledge that there is further yet to go. This is often how we receive prophecy in the Old Testament. The Lord gives us this image of what is to come and it can feel like this uniform mountain, this majestic wall of what the Lord will bring into reality and he will bring it into reality. But as we actually get into it, as we begin to see and experience the depth of God's word, the depth of God's work within humanity, when the words of this and many other Old Testament prophecies actually start to happen, we can find that there are layers to them, layers to their fulfillment. We reach the first or the second ridge and then we're left with this image of what God is still going to do in the fullness of his kingdom. This past Wednesday, we celebrated the fulfillment of a part of this prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah speaking 800 years before the birth of Christ himself points us to a king that will be born in the line of King David. He says a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, David's father. He's saying, here's how you'll know that you've reached this first ridge. Here's how you'll know that you're in the mountains. Here's how you'll know that you're in the time of fulfillment of these words. Isaiah gives us a signpost of the first mountain ridge. A king will come, and then he guides our eyes higher as he describes for us what we can expect, what we can anticipate when we make our way fully into the kingdom, he describes where we are going. And as he does so, he describes a reality that seems impossible because though we are in the kingdom here, from our lowly position, we can hardly fathom how we could experience a world that looks like this. But we're told with absolute certainty that we will. This is the world that Isaiah describes, and I read again. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We are to receive this passage with the understanding that just as the first part of this prophecy has come to pass, a king has been born. So too history is rushing towards a time when every word of the rest of this prophecy will also come to pass, that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will be defined by a type of unity and reconciliation that sounds like complete folly to our 2019 ears. We should not breeze over this passage as simply poetic hyperbole. It is poetic, 
in its representation of the world, but the words chosen are intentional. Isaiah speaks about things that are by nature oppositional, and he speaks at great length about them. He goes on and on about this impending time of unity between things that are by nature oppositional. He takes up this huge chunk of the broader passage, and that's intentional. We should pay attention to it. Isaiah is saying that in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, those who are by nature oppositional, those who um, have every inclination towards opposition, those who from birth have been brought up to be opposed, they will in the time of Jesus live together in complete unity without fear or doubt as to the motives of the other. This is where the world is going. We may not see it now, we may not yet have a clear picture of how we are going to get there, but this is where the world is going. And so the onus is on us to look at our families, our communities, our churches, and ask ourselves, are we living in that direction? We are living in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Those of us living in the time after Christmas are living in the kingdom just as I standing on a ridge looking down at Tucson can rightly say I am in the mountains. So too we in our time must say that we are in the kingdom. But I don't know how we read those words looking forward at the fullness of the kingdom and say anything but we have further yet to go. And our role must not simply be observational. We are not called simply to observe the darkness. We are not called to simply stand and describe the brokenness and division we see in the world passively hoping for change. Rather, we are to reflect the light of Jesus into the darkness of the world. We are to be active and blazing our way forward, shining our light into the darkness that surrounds us, ever climbing upwards towards that kingdom that is described. A light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What I want us to catch here is that we have a role to play in this incoming unity that Isaiah talks about. We are not passive observers. We are not bystanders waiting for the narrative to shift. We are in this. As we process this reality, I'd like to use an example from narrative, something we see in television, film, and literature. People tend to gravitate towards two very different types, different ways of telling a story. One is what we see in the M. Night Shyamalan films or an Agatha Christie novel or something like Sherlock Holmes where where we're we're left until the final moment trying to figure out and guess what's going to happen and we don't know who's on the right side of things until the end. That's not the type of story that we have in the Bible. I think the story of the Bible is more similar to what we see in Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter where we know exactly how it's going to end. We're just not sure how we're going to get there. Right, when we see the first Star Wars movie, we know the Death Star is gonna be destroyed. Like we may not really know, but we know. 
We know what's going to happen, we just don't know how it's going to happen, and that's the fun part. We gotta sit in this point of tension where, where everything seems to be falling apart, the rebel cause seems like it's nearly lost, and then Han Solo leaves and we're left wondering how could we possibly get where we know we are going. But as viewers, we never lose hope. Or Lord of the Rings, we know this, the ring is gonna be destroyed. We just don't know how it's going to happen. And that doesn't stop us from dying a little bit on the inside when they're fighting at the Black Gate and the orcs surround them and then Aragorn goes down and it seems like everything's lost. Or Harry Potter, when Harry goes into the Forbidden Forest to meet Voldemort at the end, we know he's gonna win ultimately, but it doesn't stop it from feeling helpless. Now, I know this is not a perfect illustration. We could poke holes in this all morning. Um, but what's important for us to catch is that in each of these stories, we judge the characters on whether they, even though mentally we affirm that it's nearly impossible for them, we judge them on whether they're able to hold true to the cause, to keep moving forward to where we know they are going and stay on the side of the good. This is the type of narrative that God gives us. He tells us where we are going. He tells us how the story is going to end. And so then the question becomes, are we the characters of this story moving forward courageously into the world he promises us he is building? More specifically, God tells us that his kingdom is about complete unity. That his kingdom is a place where things that seem irreconcilable are reconciled, so then are we the characters of this story actively moving forwards into this unity, or are we participating in a disunity that places us in the direct opposition to the work of God? I think that's an important question to ask ourselves. And just for the sake of clarity, this message of unity is, of course, not just found in this short section of Isaiah. Jesus, praying on the eve of his arrest for the future church, us, says this. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, us. He's praying for us here. That all of them may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's saying that the world will believe in Jesus because of our unity. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul responds to fracturing that he sees in the early church saying this, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are called to unity. We as the church are called to be one. The Bible tells us that even though it may be hard for us to see at certain times in history, the world is moving ever more towards a point when this unity will be complete that the story of this world will end, and Jesus says it is the peacemakers who will be called children of God. 
So I ask again, friends, are we, the characters of this story, participating in this reconciliation that our God says is a defining characteristic of the kingdom of God, or through our action or lack of action, through our belittling words or our refusal to be reconciled, through our failure to empathize, through our failure to intentionally sit at the table of peace and hear the stories of the marginalized, are we in these ways participating in the disunity of the church? And in so doing, is it possible that we are working against the kingdom of God? Again, I think that's an important question to ask ourselves. There's this classic youth group game where we give students some sort of issue or similar things to choose between, uh, Chick-fil-A or Popeyes, White Sox or Cubs, Superman or Batman, and then students move to either side of the room based on what they prefer, what they think is best, and then we give them a chance to state their case and have a friendly debate about it. And it can get heated, believe it or not, adolescents can have strong opinions on things. And so it's important for us to remember as a community of middle schoolers and sometimes important for me as a leader in that community to remind them is this, is that our unity in Jesus, our unity as a Christian community of people who are committed to each other is stronger than our differences. The things that unite us, Jesus, are more significant than things that are different about us. This is an important conversation to have with young people because as their worldviews are developing, so too are their conception of their own identity and their conception of what it means to live together in community. Students are asking themselves questions like, what makes me, me? To what am I going to assign value in my life? What's the hierarchy of what's most important in my life? Because that will significantly impact how they live and how they engage with the world around them. And this is not unique to young people. I can look at this in my own life. Am I a preacher first or a teacher or a family man, or a creative? Am I defined by my political allegiance? Am I defined by my being a Jesus follower or a Cubs fan? I might be all of those things, but to which am I going to give prominence to? Because sometimes those things are going to conflict and how we view ourselves is going to have a significant impact on how we engage with other people who are similarly complicated in their own passions giftings, and talents. As I work with young people, I feel a passion to help them process these things, to guide our community to look at, um, honestly, at ourselves and our peers, to at the same time not feel like we ever need to hide who we are, but also to realize that some of the things that we feel like make us really unique and special, maybe they're not worth putting all that much stock into, and they're certainly not as important as our commonality in Jesus. As a youth community, we celebrate differences, we celebrate successes and excellence, all while learning the great truth that we are ultimately united in Jesus, and that commonality, that aspect of our collective identity needs to be stronger than anything that might divide us. 
To bring us back to this game we play with kids, it's all fine and good to prefer the Cubs or the Sox. I don't care if students like Chick-fil-A over Popeyes or if they're pulling for LT over Hinsdale Central in the upcoming basketball game. It can be fun to have those conversations with them, but I need them to know that their identity in Jesus is more significant than any than identification with any of those dividing things and that our unity in as a community in Jesus is more significant than anything that would divide us. And now I've used silly examples, but for young people you can see there's a significant truth beneath the surface. I need them to know that their identity in Jesus is more significant than their identification as an athlete or a student or whether they're in the popular crowd or whether our high schoolers get into the Big Ten school they're hoping to get into. I need them to have an appropriate order of the hierarchy of things that make up their identity. Guys, I talk at length about kids because in some ways I understand kids. That's a familiar conversation for me. And believe it or not, kids are really receptive to that conversation. By and large, they want things to be ordered in the right way in their lives. Really, I say all this because as I look at our community here, and not just our church here, but the church global, I feel an unease about how we as adults are conceiving of our own identity. I think there's a lot of issues that we might be inclined to place before our common citizenship in the kingdom of God. Now, we're not gonna play that youth group game here, but let's do a little thought exercise. I think there's a lot of things that I can say that would cause immediate division. There's a lot of ways we can divide this room here. There's a lot of things I could say that would make it pretty uncomfortable. We could talk about the NFL and Colin Kaepernick, or Fox News, MSNBC. We could talk about Brexit, or Black Lives Matter or climate change, or Greta Thunberg impeachment? Should we remove the president from office? Should we reelect him? Can we handle any conversation about the election? Or the economy, or NATO, or DACA, or a wall? Even within the church, we could probably fight for days about how we worship, how we build our liturgies, how we interpret certain verses. I bet we could find a few ways to divide our room here, huh? There's a few conversations we could have, and some of these are important conversations. Some of these are things that we need to fight for or against. Let's seek truth, let's seek guidance, let's seek the will of the Lord. I pray that we would be courageous to humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters and hear their stories to identify the spirit of God within them, but I fear on any number of those issues and so many more that our identity in those things has become more important than our identity in Jesus Christ. Our divisions have taken a place of prominence over our unity in Jesus. And again, and I can't say this enough, when that is the case, we are moving in opposition to the kingdom of God. 
I don't mean to belittle any issue or oversimplify. I understand that there are centuries of history that we could pull out to explain and elaborate on the nuances of any one of those issues I mentioned before, but that's where I think the words of Isaiah are so intentional. He describes a world where creatures that are by nature oppositional, where they live in peace together because of their common understanding of the kingship of Jesus. When we are courageous to allow ourselves to fully step into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, I think we'll be surprised at how small by comparison our differences seem, that even the wolf will see fit to live in peace with a lamb and a child will see fit to spend time with a cobra. So where do we go from here? The kingdom is moving towards a place of unity. We are called to be active participants in bringing that unity, and Jesus even says that the world will know him because of our unity in the church. But the reality is is that we are divided, that our communities are divided, our nation is divided, most heartbreakingly, our churches are divided. We know this is not the way of God, but in the face of such overwhelming opposition, overwhelming division, what then is the way forward? As a preacher, I feel some pressure here to leave you with three easy steps to experiencing this impossible reconciliation in your own lives, but the truth is is that it's not easy. So how do we experience unity? First, we must submit ourselves to God. We submit our hopes, our dreams, our families, our fears, our careers, our politics, our very conception of how things are and how they should be, the things that we allow to define us, we must submit them to God. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And then we need to humbly submit to others. We submit to the spirit of God in them. We hold with our hands open our very understanding of the world, our need to be right, our need to be best or first, our need to have the last word. Jesus says anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. That's what it takes. That's what it will take for us to experience unity in the church. We submit to God and we submit to others and I promise you, it's not easy. But yet our call in the church is to march forward into a future we cannot see but by faith we know is there. As Jesus followers, we're called to cling to the light of God's word in a world so filled with darkness we must go onwards, trusting that just as that king came from the stump of Jesse, just as we are able to experience the kingdom of Jesus Christ here, so too can we trust that these words of Isaiah will fully come to pass, that the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. My friends, I'd like to leave you this morning with the most incredible story that I have ever experienced of what this looks like in the world that you might be encouraged for the journey 
ahead. Late in college, I was working with a startup nonprofit committed to partnering with the local church to help bring health and spiritual counseling and career training to some of the millions of people living with an HIV or AIDS diagnosis in sub-Saharan Africa. There were four of us working stateside, uh, mostly college students, and we were primarily in support roles. I can tell you, lest you think otherwise as you hear the rest of this story, that my role was very insignificant. Um, The real heavy lifting, the, the real hard work being done was being done by our team in Kenya. And really, everything went through our two directors, Duncan Kimani and Cornell Onyango. I think we have a picture of them. They're awesome guys. Um, they were the brains and heartbeat of the operation. Without their expertise, without their heart for ministry, without their supernatural capacity to love and to network and everything, without them, we didn't have an organization, and that was kind of by design. We wanted to build an organization of Africans helping Africans, and it was working almost entirely because of these two incredible, incredible guys. In 2007, the elections in Kenya went poorly. The nation of Kenya is made up of 42 smaller tribes who coexist amicably most of the time, but in the wake of a contested election in 2007, widespread violence spread across the country, primarily against the long-ruling Kikuyu tribe. Things got bad, fast. The UN mobilized, news stations around the world were showing footage of violence in the streets, a world still scarred by what happened in 1994 in Rwanda feared a repeat of that horror. After two months of unrest, the violence finally subsided, but all said some 1,500 people lost their lives. And when things were bad, and it was touch and go there for a little bit, our team was on the phone to Kenya a lot. You see, Duncan is a kukuyu. He was in danger, and his best friend and ministry partner, Cornell Aluo, a tribe that was actively opposing Kikuyu rule. They had gone to bed friends and woke up to a world where their tribes were adversaries. It wasn't safe for them to be seen together, and it wasn't safe for Duncan to be seen anywhere. They worked out of a compound north of the city of Nairobi. It had walls. We had a security guard. They could have been safe there. And every message from us, every message from the states said, get the whole team home. Get to the compound. Lay low, wait it out, be safe. We were pleading with them to do this because we were scared for them. They were our friends. They were our leaders. But you know what these guys did? They did make sure they got the rest of the team to safety, and then the two of them went out again immediately. They borrowed a truck, and they drove from town to town, and when they got to a town, they would gather as many people as they could, and they stood together. And they described how they were from two tribes who the world seemed to think should hate each other. They stood together, and they shared about their unity in Jesus. And they invited their country, men and women, to experience the hope and the peace of Jesus Christ anew. And then they got back in their truck, and they drove to the next town, and they did it again. And again. And again. 
We pled with them to hunker down and to stay safe, but their understanding of life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ led them to act differently. Like almost every organization working in Kenya at the time, we shut down our Kenyan operations for two months, but not because Duncan and Cornell were laying low. No, we couldn't convince them to do that. Instead, they spent two months driving all over the country speaking about Jesus Christ and the unity that can be found in his kingdom. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Jesus says that the world will know him because of our unity. I can tell you that the world knew about Jesus because of Cornell and Duncan's commitment to unity. They understood that Jesus' kingdom is a place where, where those who are opposed go out together. They understood where the kingdom was really going and they followed it. Now they're still living, by the way. That picture was taken two years ago. Um, but that wasn't... They weren't concerned about that. Their commitment was unity. I understand that a story about election violence in Kenya might not seem like the most accessible thing to leave you with. But the truth is is that our division is always, there's always complicated circumstances surrounding it. No family's ever divided over small issues. No church splits over insignificant things. As a nation, we don't debate from a point of flippancy most of the time. Rather, we cling to certain sincerely held values and we wish that the other side could just understand where we are coming from. I share such a story because I want us to see that even in the most challenging and broken of situations, if we are willing to submit ourselves to God and the reality of his kingdom and humble ourselves before others, we can experience a reconciliation that seems simply impossible. Isaiah tells us that we are marching towards a time when we will experience a peace that none of us can fathom, that the wolf will live with the lamb. May we be bold to march into that reality. We may not see how we're going to ever get there, but may we in the church be courageous to step forward in unity all the same. Will you pray with me? God, we confess that that we participate so often in a unity that, that goes against your kingdom. God, we are, we are so broken. We feel the weight of that brokenness individually and as, as a community. God, I pray that you would guide us into a new season of incredible unity, that the world would see Christ's church. They would see the way we love each other, see the way we treat each other, see the way we go out together, committed to the unity of your kingdom, that the world would see us and they would know you that they, they would see the way we love and they would know that you, t- you are a God who loves, that you are a God who fights for his people, you are a God who comes through. God, guide us towards this new season of unity this year. In Jesus' name we pray together, amen.